You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Many years ago, on a day not unlike this one, 88, 90 degree day, I found myself with about 80 of you on the Springwater Trail pulling weeds. And there's a backstory to this. Many years ago, as we continued to get more and more engaged with the community here, we called the city of Gresham and said, you know, we're a church family and we want to serve the community, no strings attached. What can we do to bless the community? And I remember the city kind of hemming and hawing about that and then they got back to us and they said, "Uh, we need some weeds pulled. And I remember thinking, do you have anything else? (laughs) Anything else we can do? No, we need weeds. Okay, let's pull some weeds for you. Where do you need to do it? Down on the Springwater Trail. Really? Yeah. So how many people do you think you can get? I don't know. We'll we'll put it out there and see who wants to come pull weeds. There, There were over 80 of you who stepped up to go pull weeds. And the reason this comes to mind for me is I run through that area every single day with my wife, the area of the Springwater Trail that we worked on. So I'm constantly reminded of, of that many years ago. And we've expanded our outreach in so many other ways as well in serving the community. But that was one of the first ways we began to do that as a church family. That being said, I remember being among 80 of you pulling weeds on a hot day just like this, and it was hard work. And we're in this isolated part of the Springwater Trail, but there's people running and walking and coming through. And I remember two things. The first is one, someone next to me getting a call on their cell phone from one of their kids, one of their adult kids, calling them saying, hey, where are you? What are you doing? Because this was on a Saturday. And they said, oh, you know, I'm on the Springwater Trail pulling weeds and stuff. And I remember, I could hear the volume, and I remember the, the voice on the other end of the line going, well, that sucks. What are you doing that for? And if we can be honest, it kind of was. I mean, it was hot, and, you know, it was itchy from stirring up all sorts of stuff, and there were stinging nettles, and some of us were getting stung, and it, it really felt like thankless work. You know, we're out kind of in the middle of nowhere on the Springwater Trail doing this stuff. Why are we doing this on a Saturday that's sunny when we could be doing other things? Well, people would also walk through, and that's the other thing I remember was we were just pulling weeds, and people would come through and say, what are you doing? I mean, there's a ton of you out. What's this about? Well, we're pulling weeds. Why? Well, because we called the city and said we're a church and we want to serve the community. How can we do this? And it was distinctive. And people noticed. And we weren't there to be noticed. We were there to serve. But when you serve, and you serve for the sake of serving... Not because you're trying to get something or trying to call attention to yourself or looking for recognition. It's a profoundly distinctive way to live. And that's where this passage will take us this morning. Fasten your seatbelts. This is very, very practical. But it's tough. Because what Jesus is going to do is, once again, as he explains what the kingdom of God is all about, he's going to help us understand that the kingdom of God, in part, is about being a servant disciple. He's not only going to tell us how to do that this morning, he's going to give the motivation for why we do it. So as I read this passage to you, and if you have a Bible in way of a phone or a tablet or some other electronic device, go ahead and turn it on and go to Luke chapter 17. If you have a hard copy Bible because you're old school like me, turn to Luke chapter 17. And I'm going to read this to you for those of you who maybe don't have it. And what's what I want you to watch for? What is the kingdom of God all about? What makes it distinctive? 
as we live it out. Here we go. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And he replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper? Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we're unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him, and they stood at a distance. And called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Once, on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is, there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. And some translations say the kingdom of God is within you. So, the kingdom of God, it's here, and it's coming. Because if you read on in this passage, Jesus will talk about it's coming. He will say the second coming is coming, and no one will miss it. It will be visible, it will be sudden, it will be a day just like today when everyone's going about their business, and Jesus will come. It's what the Old Testament describes For thousands of years before this, as the day of the Lord, it'll be a day of judgment, and it'll be a day of deliverance, and no one is going to miss it. And just so we're on the same page, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule and reign. It is shalom. It is the restoration of things the way God always intended them to be. No sin, no brokenness, no death, no Satan, no demons. All that is done. Everything is the way God always intended it to be. Bring it. I'm ready. Okay, how about today, Jesus, right? But, lest we forget, even though the kingdom of God is not yet but coming, the kingdom of God is now. God is advancing his kingdom now. God is at work in this world now, through you and me and the church and the work of the Holy Spirit 
His, his kingdom is, is coming. And that's what he talks about here. And that the kingdom is now. You want to know how to live for Jesus? You want to know how to experience the kingdom? You want to know how to bring the kingdom? We just read some of how we do that. So let's begin to work our way through this. Starts out kind of heavy, really. Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. Okay? Sin happens. But there is a significant warning here for those who lead others into sin. And this feels a little alien and a little foreign to us in some ways. Number one, how many of you go around saying, woe to you, brother, for taking my things, right? Or woe to you for cutting me off in traffic. Okay, try to look past that for a minute. (laughs) If you were with us a couple weeks ago, Gerbershire's helped us rightfully see in Luke chapter 16 that there are levels of judgment and levels of blessing and levels of punishment. And this is a very significant warning here. And it's a warning to us as individuals and as a community to watch how we live. Because we live in an individualistic culture where we make life all about us. I make life all about me. And quite often, we don't really care about or think about how what we're doing impacts other people. And Jesus says that is absolutely not the kingdom of God. We are to be very deliberate in not giving offense and in not taking offense. What you do, what you say, what I watch, what I endorse matters. Not just for how it impacts your life, but how it impacts the lives of others. Now let's take this and apply it a little bit. We live in a world of social media. In some ways, we are more connected than ever before. You have a platform where you can express yourself, uh, create, endorse, promote, basically whatever you want. And there's a very specific application here for us to think critically about. In this social media world, not just what are we watching and what are we involved with, but what are you promoting? What are you endorsing? What are you liking? What are you commenting about? Because it matters. Because if you take this warning of Jesus and you apply it, you and I need to be real careful that we are not leading people into sin by what we endorse, promote, and agree with. And and sometimes it seems like there's this disconnect for us with that reality. And we say all sorts of things and promote all sorts of things and endorse all sorts of things we would never do in person. And by way of application, Jesus says, boy, you really need to be careful with that because here's the reality. You and I are preaching and promoting and declaring the gospel by what we say, by what we watch, and by what we do. I'm reading through the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Don't ask me why. (laughs) Have you read the book of Ezekiel lately? Now, in all fairness, it's the word of God. Of course I'm glad to be reading it. But I'm reading through the Bible, and I'm at Ezekiel, and man, I'm glad it's a sunny day today, because it's depressing. I mean, you read through that, and here is a God who so graciously and patiently for thousands and thousands of years is calling his people to repentance, calling his people to turn back to him, calling his people to trust and obey him, and they keep saying, no, 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 no. And so he's finally, rightfully, necessarily judging them. And he puts his judgment 
and his rightful punishment of them in all these powerful metaphors. And he basically says, do you realize that when you were having sex with someone who is not your husband or your wife, you were declaring the gospel that is this. Jesus shacks up with his girlfriend, the church, and lives with her, takes advantage of her, and then breaks up with her. Is that the gospel? Uh, No. The gospel is Jesus lays down his life, sacrifices himself for his bride, the church. He makes a commitment to her that he will never break. He fulfills every promise to her. He loves her. He protects her. He provides for her. He stands by her, and he will never leave her. That is the gospel of the kingdom. Once again, how we live our lives matter, and you are declaring the gospel or some type of gospel by how you live your life. And life isn't just all about you. It matters how it impacts the people around you. Boy, that's pretty hard. Oh, wait, it gets harder. We're just getting started on this whole discipleship stuff. He tells us to practice forgiveness. I wrote it that way deliberately because it's true. Forgiveness is not natural. It takes practice. It takes deliberateness. It is an acquired skill. And look at the practical wisdom that Jesus gives us in living this out. He starts out, if your brother or sister sins against you. Now, when someone wrongs you, hurts you, betrays you, what do you think about them when they do that? Where does your mind naturally go? When you're angry with someone because they've hurt you, don't we begin to focus on everything that's different between us in terms of, I would never do what they did. I would never be critical like that. I would never say that. I would never do that. I would never wrong someone the way they have wronged me. And we focus on the dissimilarities, the things that are are different, and yet, is that all really true? Even on our best days, aren't we a mixture of godliness and goodness and sinfulness and brokenness? And so now we begin to elevate that person to a place where we're not, but we think they should be. But the reality is, they're still your brother. They're still your sister. They're still your coworker. They're still your, your neighbor. But we live in a culture that demonizes and polarizes people when they wrong us. And we forget we're not so much different than they are. By way of example, with what we looked at last week with the prodigal son, the love of the father, when that younger son left, he was still the older brother's brother. That hadn't changed. He was still the father's son. That did not change. So one of the practical steps to forgiveness is to identify with the, with the wrongdoer. But it gets harder because the next thing Jesus talks about, really what he's illustrating here in what we just read is we pay the debt of the wrongdoer. And when the Bible talks about forgiveness, you have to understand and appreciate it is using an economic idea and an economic term. The idea of forgiveness literally means to retire or forgive the debt of another. So once again, 
in the passage that precedes us a couple weeks ago, when Gary Brashears took us through Luke chapter 16, the story of the incompetent manager. What he did was he very shrewdly went back and he forgave the debts of all the people that he had wronged. And we, we totally get this. We understand this principle. As a church, we understand this. We're right on the cusp of completing a two-year focus that we've called Grace Unleashed, where we're looking to pay down and retire as much of our mortgage debt as, as we can. Because we need to. And so this idea of paying off debt, we, we understand this. But here's the reality. When someone wrongs you or me, a debt has been incurred. And here is the fundamental question that Jesus is surfing, surfacing here. Who's going to pay that? Well, oftentimes, we make them pay it. Justice is reasonable payment of the wrong that's been inflicted on you. Vengeance is when we take that and magnify it like by ten times. So we understand this. We get this. When someone wrongs us, there's a debt to be paid. Forgiveness is that you choose to pay the debt. You take the pain upon yourself. And just so we're on the same page, this is not forgive and forget like it so often gets misconstrued as. This isn't pretending you weren't wrong. This isn't creating a false reality. This isn't living detached from what really happened. This is about actually remembering the offense and then choosing to retire it. And to sink the point, Jesus says, if someone wrongs you seven times in a day and they repent, then seven times you forgive them. The point is not the number. The point is the principle. You choose to forgive over and over and over again. And there's something else intrinsic in this passage. As you're doing so, you're seeking the good of the wrongdoer. Can this get any harder? Okay, now some of you might legitimately ask, okay, this says if they repent. What if they don't? What if they don't repent? Well, Matthew 18 talks a lot more in detail about what what Luke is just skimming by here. And actually, Mark 11 picks up on it too, where Jesus said, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Does it say anything about repentance here? It doesn't. But again, this is another passage and passages and a much longer sermon than what we have time for today. But the, but the reality is, there isn't a way around this. So seeking the good of someone who wrongs you means you, you pray for them, you look for ways to bless them, not enable them in their brokenness. That's not what this is talking about. But did you also notice rebuking them is in this passage? It says if your brother sins against you, rebuke them. That means confront them. Don't just passively let it go by. Now, once again, this is where it begins to get complicated. There are times you deliberately choose to absorb something and you don't steer into it. But this in particular speaks to those of us who are conflict avoidant. So really to protect ourselves, we won't steer into something. We won't rebuke something. We won't confront Something And Jesus says, I know you do need to steer into things. That's not the right motivation. Do you see how this is simple and complicated all at the same time? And I bet I know what you're thinking. Because it's what I'm thinking. And we know it's what the disciples were thinking. 
And what were they thinking? This is too hard. There is no way. And this is how we know that, because look what they say to Jesus. Increase our faith. Please understand. Every scholar, every commentator, all the research I've done says this is absolutely true. We know by how the original language was written. We know the context that this is what they were saying. They were not saying, Yay, Jesus, this is so great. Increase our faith. Let's all sing, you know, a joyful song. No. By their tone and by what they're saying here, they're saying, This is impossible. You are going to have to increase our faith for this to happen. Now watch how Jesus responds. This is amazing. He says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. So did he answer their question? And he actually did. When I went to Israel a couple years ago, someone gave me a little vial of mustard seeds. And so I went outside this week and put it on the sidewalk outside the building here and I took one of those thousand piece puzzle pieces and put it next to it and took that picture. It was kind of funny. Some of our staff were driving by and here I am, you know. And they said, what are you doing? But this is what I was doing. Set the record straight. Trying to get a picture without a shadow in it. But do you see how small those seeds are? They're tiny. Tiny, tiny, tiny. And in the frame of reference of a Palestinian first century farmer, this is the smallest seed that they could think of. And Jesus said, if you have that much faith, you can do this. So what is Jesus really saying here? Okay, well, a mulberry tree has an incredibly deep, extensive root system. And it's because of that they can live up to 600 years. And so Jesus, by this example, is saying, hey, you know, tell that mulberry tree to go in the sea and it will. Is the point to do that? No, it's a figurative example. and It's an example of amazing faith. What Jesus is saying is the point is not the tree in the sea. The point is faith in me. You do not have a faith problem. You have a belief problem. Because I've given you everything you need to do this. If you have me, you have enough Faith, this is not about the quantity of your faith. This is about the object and focus of your faith. So let's take it a step further. Okay, so what if you don't feel like doing this? Is there anyone who ever feels like forgiving? What if you don't ever feel like forgiving? Jesus goes on to say, well, once again, this is really an issue of simple economics. And he illustrates that with a story of what exercising faith looks like. He tells the story of a servant, and in some translations it says slave. Now we need to make sure we have the same frame of reference that Jesus did when we begin to try to understand this story. When you hear the word slave, what comes to mind? For me, I think of institutional slavery like what happened in our country's history some couple hundred years ago where you owned a person and you had absolute power over your life, over their life. That's not what this is talking about. This is not about institutional slavery. That was wrong, it was repugnant, it was evil, it was sinful. And it was the principles like these that we're looking at in Scripture, biblical principles that actually helped end that institution. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about an indentured servant. 
someone who has a debt they have to pay. Here's, here's an example. So today, after church, God bless you. You're going to take me out to a really nice lunch or dinner. And you take me out to this really nice restaurant and you're going to buy me steak and lobster. God bless you. I'm free today. And so, no, that's not really true, but let's go anyway. So you take me out to this restaurant for steak and lobster, and we have this really expensive, great meal, and the check comes, and you take the check, and you go, ah, I'm out of money. How are you going to pay that? And then as we begin to talk, you begin to tell me, well, actually, I've been out of money for some time. I've got like $100,000 of debt to my name. I have, I have no money. I'm up to debt in my eyeballs. In this day and age, we have this thing called bankruptcy, where you would declare bankruptcy, and yes, there are um, consequences that come with that, and there's pain and difficulty that comes with that. By no way am I minimizing that, but you have to understand in the first century, they didn't have bankruptcy. So if you got in debt to someone, this is how our little story would look. They would come out, and they would say, you need to pay this. You say, well, I don't have the money to pay it. And they say, okay, here's an apron. Put it on. Go in the back. Start washing dishes. And once you have paid off your debt, then you can go. You've just become an indentured servant. And so for room and board, you then would work as long as it took, years, decades, maybe even the course of your life, to pay off your debt. That's what Jesus is talking about here. So if you're an indentured servant, the master, or the person you were paying the debt to, is not going to say, thank you so much for doing the work that you're supposed to be doing. Of course you're doing the work. You're in debt. You're trying to work and pay off your debt. And that's Jesus' point. And to sink this point home, then he tells the story of the lepers. We could spend a whole other sermon on this amazing story. But just to condense things, these ten lepers stand at a distance, which they were supposed to do, and they call out to Jesus to heal them. You have to understand, leprosy was an incurable disease in the first century. There was no way to treat it except one, and that was quarantine and isolation. And in the Old Testament, the law stipulated that if you had leprosy, you were outside the community, necessarily, because it's an infectious skin disease. But it was profoundly isolating. When you would walk through a crowd, you would have to shout out, unclean, unclean, so that people would know not to touch you and they would part around you. And when you were talking to someone who did not have leprosy, you were required to stand at a distance because that way you wouldn't infect them. And over and over again, Jesus will use things like the healing of leprosy to illustrate the kingdom of God and what he does in someone's life. Because when Jesus healed those ten lepers, he didn't just change their pain and he didn't just change them as a person. He changed their position in the community. And so the law stipulated that if there was a miraculous healing or for whatever reason leprosy left someone, they had to go to the priests and present themselves to the priests because the priests were kind of like the health officers. That was one of the hats they wore. And it was for them to validate that, yes, this healing has taken place. But what was so significant about that is that if you presented yourself to the priests and, yes, you were indeed free from leprosy for the first time, possibly the first time in your life, you now were restored to community and relationship. 
That day could have been the first day in that leper's life he was able to touch someone other than someone else with leprosy. Could have been the first day he got a hug. It is profoundly powerful because what Jesus is illustrating here is the holistic healing that happens on every level when you enter into the kingdom of God by choosing to trust him as your Lord and Savior. Why was that leper grateful? Because he had entered the kingdom of God. When Jesus says, your faith has made you well, the man hadn't just been healed physically, he had been healed spiritually. Do you think he was grateful? Would you be? Why aren't you? Why am I not grateful? Because do you know whose story this really is? This is my story. And this is your story. Every single one of us has a disease that we cannot cure on our own. It is an incurable disease. It's called sin. And it leads to physical death. When Jesus comes back someday, there's going to be an end to that. But it also leads to spiritual death. Because you see, everybody lives forever. Everybody. The question is, will you live forever in the presence of God, in right relationship with him, healed, restored to who you were always created to be, or will you live forever apart from God in brokenness and sinfulness? It's a choice. And you have to understand that Jesus has paid a debt for you that you can never repay and that you couldn't ever hope to pay on your own. That's the story of what we looked at last week. Some of us can so relate to the younger son, to the prodigal son, because there have been those times and those seasons in our lives when we shake our fist at God and say, I want my happiness. God wants me happy. Therefore, I'm going to live on my terms, not yours. I don't want you. I just want the blessing. That's what the younger son was saying. Or we're the older son who are entitled and we're resentful because God hasn't delivered on what we think he should have given us or we have stuff going on in our life that we don't think we should have to go through and so we become bitter. Or we're the people who are unforgiving. We know there's people we should forgive and we're not going to. And therefore we become condemning. My friends, if you understand if you truly understand the way that Samaritan leper did, that God has paid your debts, that he has healed you, then you will fall at his feet in gratitude as well. And loving him and serving him and being a servant disciple won't be the four-letter word known as duty, but it will be a delight because you know what he has done for you because you get it. And it changes your life as a result. I've shared this story with you before. So some of you will remember this. It wasn't very long ago I I read this to you, but I think it captures really everything that we've talked about here today. It illustrates living out these truths. 
And by the way, whenever I read a story like this, I always do it with permission, and it's always done anonymously. So by that way of saying, I love to hear what God's teaching you and what he's doing in your life. Email me your stories, and I'll never read them or share them without permission, but I get to do this because someone shared their story with me, and this is what it says. I've held Luke 6 as the bedrock for my life, and it has changed my life. And Luke 6, by the way, is where Jesus talks about loving your enemy and many of the truths he's reiterating here. It was when my husband of 22 and a half years finally left with his mistress and left our family high and dry. I really began to understand it's easy to love friends, but it's hard to love enemies. As I went along the journey of my divorce, there were many times I would remember, bless your enemy. Bless and forgive your enemy. I then started to think of what the fruit of the Spirit that my ex-husband was lacking, and I would pray for that fruit to come into his life. I knew that it was going to be really hard to hate him if I was praying for him. I tried to teach the children this, but I'm not sure they all understood the meaning of loving your enemy. But today I'm so thankful for the understanding that we're called to love like Christ. And I'm not near to what Christ's love was, but he's given me a very clear example of how to love. So today, after seven years in the courts and way too much money given to lawyers, I can honestly say, The Lord has given my heart a complete healing. And my children have seen the Lord's work in my and their father's life. I'm not sure if their father loves Jesus, but he has since apologized to the children for the awful things that he did. And he's apologized to me. I know that I forgave my ex many years ago, but love your enemy is what has healed my heart. And I cannot thank the Lord enough for healing years of pain. God is my Savior. Is He yours? He can be. Some of you are probably wrestling with this like the disciples did. God, I can't do this. It's too hard. Give me faith. But if you have Jesus, you have all the faith you need. The issue is, the real question is, will you believe? This is your time once again, as our worship team comes and as we respond to God's word together, to reconfirm that you believe, to anchor yourself to what God says is true, to what Jesus says he will do, to what Jesus says is possible. So we have deliberately designed this to be a long time of worship. And this is your time and your place and your space to listen to the Spirit and to respond to him. You're all so busy. You have so many things that distract you, that tug at you, that come at you in the course of the week. This is some extended time to listen to the Lord, to respond to him, to sing to him, to think about these songs, to think about these truths. We have communion tables off to the side. Go take communion. Remind yourself of what he's done for you. I'm gonna ask our prayer teams to come forward and don't be shy prayer teams, but to come forward. Our prayer teams will be available to pray with you because one of the reasons God gives us each other is to live out the kingdom of God together. So let's do that together.
And let me pray his blessing over you as we do. I thank you that if we have you, Jesus, we have everything we need to live out the life that you call us to, to forgive, to not give offense or take offense, to seek the good of someone who has wronged us, to pray blessing, to not exercise vengeance, but to choose forgiveness. Lord, we could go on and on, but this is what I do know. We need you. We declare that this morning. And we ask now that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. We celebrate a God who pays all our debts, who has rescued us from a life of sin and brokenness and calls us to joy and hope and life. And so we remember that this morning. And we thank you that you love us and you're here with us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Seeking his face is something that we do together. We do it as individuals, but we do that together as a community, as, as the church. And I had one of those moments this week where something that is familiar, that you've read and thought about for so many years, so many times, just took on two meaning, new meaning for me, and that was the Lord's prayer. It is a corporate prayer. It is a prayer that we pray in community But as we prepare to read this together, I want you to watch for what it says about forgiveness in light of what we've talked about here today. And so to symbolize the reality that we are a church family, that we are a community, I'm going to ask you to do something that for some of you will be a step out of your comfort zone, and and that's okay. But will you hold hands with the person who's next to you just as a symbol of our community as, as a church family? And we're going to read this together. So would you read this with me and think about what we've talked about here today. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that we seek and discover you, that we seek your face in community. And Lord, now we celebrate and sing about the freedom that we have in you. Freedom for bitterness, freedom from condemning attitudes, freedom from unforgiveness, and freedom to live the life that you call us to live as servant disciples. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So who are you? You're a child of God. And if you have Jesus, you have everything you need to follow him, to trust him, to obey him, to believe him. But when it comes to forgiveness, it's simple and it can be profoundly complicated as well. On the back resource table there, we have something that our Dr. Gary Brashears created for us. And it's really a basic principled um, roadmap to forgiveness built right out of scripture. And to be quite honest with you, I have this grid in my head and mentally think through it whenever I'm apologizing to someone or I'm receiving 
an apology from someone and extending forgiveness. That's available for you. But the other thing that he's given us is each other as a community. Because life can be profoundly complicated. And forgiveness is simple, but at times very complicated. And that's why we do life together. We have prayer teams up here on both sides. They would love to pray with you about anything that we can pray with you about. But you can do this. Because of what Jesus said, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. And neither will people say, oh, here it is, or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is within you. If you have Jesus, you have everything you need for the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Thank you for each person who is here this morning. And Lord, as we go from here now, we ask that your spirit will guide us into right relationship with you and right relationship with one another. Would we live our lives so distinctly as servant disciples because of what you have done for us? Our debts are paid. We are free. We are children of God. Thank you, Lord. Would that gratitude carry us into this next week with what we say and do? And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said? Amen. Amen. Go enjoy a beautiful day, and we hope to see you next week. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.